0: So the title of my talk is Towards an Inactive Conception of Extended Affectivity, and indeed as uh, Peter was saying, uh, it's an attempt, at, in fact I can anticipate, uh, at trying to put together these uh, two E's, uh, the extended and the inactive mind, but uh, if you haven't ever heard of this E's, I will hopefully give you enough uh, detail to, to, follow, to follow my talk. So before uh, telling you what my talk is gonna be about and giving you the, the overview, I'll just uh, mention uh, w- where this all started, uh, um, so, so to speak. So the, really the starting point for the main considerations of this talk is the extended cognition thesis, uh, which uh, as uh, um, some of you, all of you, or any of you might know, was uh, introduced originally by Andy Clark and David Chalmers in a paper that is now a classic 1998 paper. And I'm not going to go into the details of this paper, but just briefly to tell you, this is uh, according to this thesis, uh, uh, very briefly put, the mind is not just in the head, uh, but it's not even just in the organism. The mind sometimes can also come to include uh, uh, material parts of the environment. So Clark and Chalmers stated that the material vehicles that realize cognition in particular, so this is known as the extended mind thesis, but it's really primarily a thesis about cognition, they claim that the material vehicles that realize cognition do sometimes include parts of the world uh, outside the organism. And uh, uh, if, uh, if, this, uh, if you've never heard of this thesis and this sounds a bit crazy to you, I think a good example to just give you a, a sense of what you're saying is the example of calculating with pen and paper. This is a case in which arguably um, the part of the material world that supports the cognitive process of calculating is not just all in the head, but it also involves the symbols on the paper and also the very activity of writing them down. So it's it's partly also an embodied process. Um, So this thesis uh, presupposes a computational functionalist and representational account of cognition. So uh, kind of uh, simply put, the extended mind thesis assumes that cognition is a process of computation over representations, and it claims that these representations are not always all in the head, but they can also be in the world, as in the case of calculating with pen and paper. Mm-hmm. So um Mm, What I'm interested in, my question for today's talk is, well, how does this idea that objects can be part of the material vehicles that realize a certain cognitive process uh, relate to the approach to the mind that I've been interested mainly in my past work, the so-called enactive approach uh, to the mind? So you you mentioned um, my my past work, so I, I just put the, the book here not just for self-advertising, but just to point out, so I, in, my, in my past work I have actually been quite sympathetic to this uh, so-called enactive view to cognition and I have in particular tried to uh, reconceptualize affectivity and a variety of affective phenomena from the point of view of enactivism. Now enactivism it's not a view of con- cognition as computational and representational so you might wonder, well if the extended mind thesis relies so much on the idea that cognition is representational to argue that it can be extended, perhaps enactivism an acti- an doesn't really allow cognition to extend because, as I will explain in a minute, according to enactivism, the mind is very much tied to the biological organism. So one, one might think that it doesn't make sense from the perspective of someone who supports an inactive view of cognition to say that the world can be part of cognition. So so my question for this talk is then, how does the thesis of extended mind uh, relate to the inactive approach to the mind? Does the inactive approach to the mind also allow parts of the world to be included into the material vehicles that realize or, as an activist say, enact the mind? And then in particular, because I have an interest in affectivity, I'm also particularly curious uh, of whether the inactive approach allows specifically for affectivity to be underpinned or realised, uh, subsumed by processes that are not just in the brain or even not just in the body. So what I'm going to do then for my talk is the following, I will fr- briefly introduce uh, uh, some of the main features of the inactive approach and in particular we will tell you about the, um, what enactivists claim about uh, living systems and the relation to cognition. And in particular, so I will, I will point out how for an activist, uh, living systems are cognitive and indeed also at the same time affective systems. So then I'm going to review the recent and active proposal that living systems can extend. And as we will see, this is a, an idea that has been developed by uh, Di Paolo. So the first, these first two points are really mainly going to be a kind of a, a overview of what uh, other people have said about life and cognition. So, and what I'm going to do then after presenting that is drawing out what I think are just, uh well, it's really just implicit in these previous points. I will draw out the implications of the above for the inactive approach and point out that, well, if you hold that living systems are cognitive and affective and that living systems can extend, then you can also argue that for inactivism, cognition and affectivity can also extend. So, it is possible for inactivism to say something similar to what the extended mind, uh, uh, the extended cognition thesis says. So it is possible for an activism to allow for things outside the organism to become part of the material realisation of, uh, of the mind. That's going to be the main the main point of my talk. But I'm going to try to put more detail around it. So maybe a clarification before I go on. When I talk about an activism, I have in mind a certain line um, that uh, I trace back to this book, The Embodied Mind, that was published in 1991 and uh, authored co authored by Francisco Varela, Evan Thompson, and Eleanor Roche. And then in 2007, Evan Thompson published this uh, um, quite thick book, Mind in Life, uh, which is really a synthesis of uh, and, and a further development of the inactive approach. More recently, Ezekiel Di Paolo also has done a lot of work to develop uh, this approach further. Um, and I, I, I see these authors as representing what I, I, I call, for simplicity here, canonical enactivism. Ex- but there, there is at the moment a <laughs> proliferation of enactivist views. And for example, Alva Noy um, calls his approach to perception enactive. There are the radical enactivists, such as Hutto and mine. But I think their approaches are quite different. And in fact, there is some work that needs to be done here to try to point out the differences and commonalities. So I'm not going to talk about. Those other versions of an activism. I'm gonna focus on this uh, you know, canonical enactivism. So this version of an activism um, has at its, uh, at its core a main claim, which is that living systems, so all living systems are cognitive systems in virtue of their organization. So life is sufficient for cognition in this view. And what makes the organization of uh, living systems uh, special, such that they can be cognitive systems, is the fact that it's a, an, uh, an autonomous and adaptive organization. So I'm going to explain this in a bit more detail. So what is for a system to be autonomous? Well, according to Varela, and this has been taken up more recently by Thompson, in an, autonomous o- in, an auto- in an autonomous system, The constituent processes depend on each other for their generation and their realisation as a network. They constitute the system as a unity and they also determine a domain of possible interactions with the environment. So that's the kind of official uh, definition of autonomous system in this literature. And this is, um, this um, definition entails that autonomous systems are operationally closed which means that the results of the operations of the components of the system remain within the system itself. Uh, And by the way, this doesn't mean that the system is causally isolated from its surroundings, in fact quite the contrary. So if you think of a living cell, the cell uh, is in constant exchange with the environment, it has constant uh, exchange of matter and energy with its environment. But then the cell itself in an activism is characterised in, as an autonomous system because it is operationally closed. So the results of the operations of the components of the cell remain within the system. And this is a diagram that Di Paolo has proposed recently to try to um, capture visually this idea of oper- operational closure. So if you look at this diagram, the so circles in this ca- diagram represent processes and uh, arrows represent uh, influences of one process to the other and the black circles and arrows represent an operationally closed system whereas, um, so so if you look at this, uh, this black black stuff here, so um, if you take one process in this system, say this uh, this circle here, this circle uh, is influences this circle which then influences this circle which influences these other circles and if you follow the arrows around you will see that they all stay within the black uh, system, which means this is operationally closed. But that doesn't mean that it cannot causally interact with other other processes. So for example, this process uh, influences this process, but then this process itself influences this process, and there are no more uh, influences here back into the the black process. So this circle represents a process that uh, is merely causally related to the Operationally closed network, and interestingly here the diagram also has um, uh, well is drawn this way to show that, for example, you can have a certain process which is physically perhaps inside an operationally closed system. But j- the fact that something is physically inside a, a certain system doesn't it make part of it in an operational sense? So this gray circle here, um, well, yeah, it looks like it's inside. Um, well it's, you know, surrounded by black uh, processes, uh, circles, but itself it doesn't have any influence on any of these processes. And so, according to this definition, it is not seen as part of the operationally closed network. Um, autonomy also, an activist emphasized that what, what they mean by real autonomy or autonomous in the wide sense is that. Well, living systems are autonomous systems made of precarious component processes. So these are processes that stop, run down, or cease to exist in the absence of the enabling relations established by the network. And so again, if you look at this, if if this is uh, an autonomous system, then uh, um, in in the sense specified here, then this component, this component, this component, they will cease to exist if the other conditions that keep them in place also will cease to exist, so it's a a system that maintains itself. And De and Thompson recently put it this way, they say only a network of precarious processes is literally self-enabling, because only such a network needs to continually work to maintain itself, and so to to resist these forces that would otherwise lead to its uh, um, destruction. So, so far, I've then illustrated you the property of autonomy, so what an activist thinks, so an activist thinks that living systems are autonomous in the way I've just presented to you, in the sense that they are operationally closed and also made by precarious processes. But then the other necessary ingredient here for a living system, according to an activist, is adaptivity. And adaptivity here is defined, and this comes from uh, Paolo's work, as the capacity to regulate itself, so the capacity of a, of a system, of an organism, to regulate itself with respect to conditions that the organism registers as improving or deteriorating, as viable or unviable. And uh, this is, uh, you know, to take a much uh, cited example here in the literature, the example of bacterial chemotaxis. So this is uh, when uh, you know, bacteria, they are very, very simple organisms, uh, but they are able to detect uh, uh, parts of the environment where there is more nutrient, more sucrose, and to swim towards it. So they, they, they can swim towards a uh, higher concentration of sugar and also away from, uh, um, from noxious substances. So in doing so, the bacterium regulates its network of processes with respect to its conditions, which the bacterium registers as unviable or viable. So it's unviable when the bacterium is in contact with a noxious substance, and it's viable when the system, the bacterium, meets a higher concentration of sugar. So in simple words, so the bacterium is not just a system that maintains itself, It's not just an operationally closed uh, system of precarious processes, but it's also a system that can regulate its own activity in relation to the environment. And that's the idea that it's also an adaptive system. So the fact that it's autonomous and adaptive is what makes it a living system according to an activist. And so then an activist adds The further claim, which is the claim that many people think is the the most radical and obnoxious claim, which is that living systems in virtue of being autonomous and adaptive are cognitive systems. And um, the way this view is phrased in the literature is that living systems are sense-making systems. (coughs) So they are cognitive in in this uh, very basic sense uh, of sense-making. to me, the, the best way to understand what, it, uh, what, what an activist means here is to point to this idea that living systems, in virtue of their organisation, transform their psycho-physiochemical environment into an umwelt in uh, school sense, so into a world that is meaningful to the organism. And this is, uh, an activist say, really a very, very basic form of cognition. And cognition, thus defined as sense making, entails the appearance of a perspective or point of view on the side of the organism from which the environment has a certain meaning. <coughs> and Varela, so they the determine in in in. Uh, that you find discussed nowadays in an activism is sense-making. But Varela, already in 91, talked about world-making, so the capacities that living systems have to, uh, transform uh, these physical environments in which they are plunged uh, into worlds of meaning. So that's why, that's hence the word word world-making. So this is maybe the closer you get to an argument for this view. Uh, Varela in 91 stressed that we have to posit this point of view of perspective from you know, well, within the organism if we want to make sense any sense at all of of, of uh, its behavior. So if you take again the, the bacterium swimming in swimming in the sugar gradient uh, we have to posit that it's, that it has a certain perspective from which the the world makes sense to it if we want to make sense of its behavior. So Varela wrote the entire bacterium points to its sucrose gradient and the flagellar bit, as relevant. The specific significance as components of feeding behavior is only possible by the presence and perspective of the bacterium as a totality. Remove the bacterium as a unity, and all correlations between gradients and hydrodynamic properties become environmental chemical laws, evident to us as observers, but devoid of any special significance. So the idea being here that, if you don't have the bacterium and you just have a, a, um, a sugar gradient, uh, well, that sugar gradient doesn't have any value or any meaning as nutrient because there is no living system there which is uh, acting in relation to the sugar in the way it does. So the bacterium, the fact that there is a bacterium in this sugar gradient means that the sugar gradient is a nutrient and it's a nutrient from the perspective of the bacterium. That's that's the idea. So what I, I want just to add to this story, that's something I've done in my past work, I've added a little piece on, on this uh, this uh, narrative, which is uh, that, well, if you define cognition as sense-making in the way I've just uh, presented to you, in the way that an activist do, then what you're, really, what you're doing is really to characterise cognition as inherently affective already. And this is uh, a claim that Uh, um, I mean, this is an aspect of an activism that is, I guess, the main reason why I find an activism um, um, Mm -hmm. enticing or interesting as a view, because I am particularly interested in affectivity, and I I do think that affectivity is not just a kind of uh, separate parts of our mind, but it imbues all our mind. And I think an activism allows one to make that claim at the very basic, at, at the very roots of life itself. Um, But so here I should specify that when I I talk about affectivity, I I, I have in mind a very general phenomenon which I think is best characterised as a kind of lack of indifference. Um, So the bacterium in its sugar gradient is not indifferent to its environment. It's able to discriminate between um, concentrations of sugar that are better for it and, and substances that are not so good for it. So I think this is a way of saying already that the, um, that the bacterium is in a sense an affective system, is somehow sensitive or concerned about its own condition, about the situation in which it's, it's it finds itself. Um, and the, the word concern appears also in Jonas' philosophy of the organism, and this is not uh, I- I accidental because uh, uh, recent developments of an activism and this idea of sense-making owes a lot to Jonas' philosophy. And Jonas Iona, himself, when he talks about this uh, very basic organisation of life, he talks about the irritability of life, which again, I think, points to a kind of affectivity, a certain sensitivity of living organism to... Um, to their, con- their own condition. And to me, the notion of Umwelt is already itself a thoroughly affective uh, concept, because the Umwelt is not just, as Uxul said, is not the umgebung, is not just a neutral, physical, chemical world. It is the world as it makes sense, as it strikes the organism in terms of uh, yeah, some kind of meaning. So, so the Umwelt is, is really um, um, yeah, it's, it's an affective phenomenon. In this broad sense of affectivity. So the, this, the way I'm using the term affectivity here does not entail uh, uh, that, say, an affective system has individual emotions. So I wouldn't want to say that perhaps that you know that bacterium has emotions, especially and nothing resembling you know, human emotions. But this sense of affectivity, you know, as I said, very general sense of lack, lack of indifference, is what I'm talking about here. So. So I think that when an activist activist characterises living systems as sense-making systems, they are saying not only that living systems are cognitive systems, but also that they are affective in this broad sense. And this, um, you you can see, is a very different view uh, from the one you find, say, in uh, more traditional computational views of cognition, where cognition is usually characterised as (coughs) non-affective And then the question is, well, how does it relate to affectivity and then what is affectivity itself? But in in an activism I think we have a very different view from the beginning as, you know, cognition is already somehow imbued with a kind of uh, um, affectivity, (laughs) I don't know what other word to use there. Okay, so now move on to this question of internalism, externalism. So the question that now I'm going to address in the rest of the talk is whether the view that enactivists have been developing uh, of uh, living systems being cognitive sense-making systems in virtue of their organization is a view that in fact is just internalist about the mind or if you want cognition and also the same time affectivity. So in other words, does the enactive view of uh, life, and, life and cognition entail that the material processes that enact the mind have to remain inside the organism? Is cognition bound to the boundaries of the living system according to an activism? And Michael Wheeler here actually has responded yes to this question. He thinks that an activism is an internalist view of uh, the mind. He thinks that uh, according to an activism life and cognition are co-located and so the boundaries of the living system coincide with the boundaries of the mind. So, uh, he, he is someone who is very interested in the extended cognition thesis that I've um, put up at the beginning, so he thinks that actually an activism is incompatible with the extended cognition thesis because extended cognition thesis is externalist and an activism cannot be externalist about the mind. So I want to disagree now with the, uh, with Michael Wheeler and I want to do so by building on uh, something that. Uh, and and Ezekiel di Paolo has uh, already argued, but I don't think he has uh, drawn all the implications that I want to draw that also uh, apply to affectivity in particular. So what di Paolo has pointed out in a 2009 paper, which is a bit confusing here because in spite of the date it was a reply to Wheeler, never mind about that. So so, um, di Paolo has argued that an activism allows living systems to extend. And I'm going to clarify what he means uh, um, in in the next slide. But just an anticipation then of of what I want to to add to this then, uh, well, I think that if you allow living systems to extend, then you get extended cognition um, quite quite, uh, automatically from this, given an activism's view of the relationship between life and cognition. So, well, this, is, this is me, just in case. <laughs> just to clarify who is saying what, <laughs> so, so what I want to say, uh, what I want to say, well, if life can extend and if, uh, if, as we've seen, life is sufficient for cognition in the sense of sense-making, thereby also for affectivity, then the material processes that underpin sense-making can also extend in the sense that they can, they can come to include parts of the world beyond the boundaries of the organism. And if that's the case, then enactivism does not necessarily entail an internalist view of cognition. So you can get externalism in inactivism as well. So I'm gonna now fill in, you know, expand on this point and and uh, and explain the details here. So first, then the idea that life can extend. Well, Dipalo in this p- paper, which is actually titled Extended Life, says a variety of things, but what one thing at some point that he comes up with is this interesting example of an insect that can breathe underwater thanks to mediating air bubbles that are trapped in its uh, tiny abdominal hair. And apparently many insects have this uh, capacity. This is called plastron respirations, and so they, you know, insects that can live um, in, in in this world, they can also jump into the water and keep living indefinitely thanks to these air bubbles that they trap on this abdominal hair. And the way this (coughs) works is that, uh, uh, well, the insect starts to consume oxygen in the air bubbles uh, and then you you create, uh, uh, in the bubbles, there is a a partial pressure deficit which is compensated by oxygen coming in from the water. And so basically the bubble keeps refilling itself with oxygen and the, the insect can use this oxygen to survive uh, underwater indefinitely. So it's kind of having an oxygen, uh, or what's the word in English when you're a sub, you do scuba, no, not scuba diving, scuba diving, well, can yeah. you say? diving, diving. So what's scuba that diving. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> so it's, it's something like that. So, so Di Paolo, in discussing this example, he says the mediation Uh, referring to the the mediation that the air bubbles do, the mediation in cases like this is so intimately connected with vital functions that the living system itself might be called extended. Um, So he also uses the term a new form of life to refer to this composite system of the insect plus the air bubbles. So what we have in effect here, if he he, he calls it a new form of life, it's a new adaptive autonomous system. Okay, but then, if this new system is autonomous and adaptive, then it is also a sense-making system uh, that is a cognitive and affective system. Basically, that's that's what an active story is telling you, it's telling you that autonomous and adaptive systems are sense-making systems. if this is a this is this is supposed to be the, the animal with the air bubbles. So if this is an extended um new form of life so I I meant to go back. If this is an extended uh, new form of life, then it's also an extended sense making system. Um, maybe I I guess that should be quite clear by now, but maybe to may reinstate the point. So maybe we can call insect N the uh, the insect without the air bubbles, the insect that's you know the how it is before it goes into the water mm. and traps the air bubbles, and we call insect E the insect N plus the air bubbles, and then insect E is a you know is a new system, is a new form of life, a composite system that constitutes the material processes that enact a new form of sense making, and uh, maybe we can then elaborate on this by. Um, by, uh, um, by, by considering a comparison between say an insect that does not have the capacity to trap air bubbles and an insect that does. So I- here in my example I have an ant um, uh, apparently some ants uh, can survive underwater with this method but so let's take a non-aquatic ant and let's compare it with a, a diving beetle, so a beetle who can actually uh, trap air in its, uh, in its um, uh, in its hair and live undef- indefinitely underwater. So, insect E, which is our diving beetle, so it's the extended living system, will experience a certain aquatic environment, such as the pond, in a certain way. And arguably this is a quite different way uh, from the, uh, the, the way in which the ant, the non-aquatic ant, will experience the same point if it's plunged into the pond. Um, so that's just another way of saying that the same pond will be made sense of or cognized differently by the two insects. And the main difference is due to the fact that well in the case of the diving beetle, the diving beetle has this mediating structure which is uh, um, changing the relation to the environment in quite a dramatic way. So here is where talking about affectivity I think helps. I, 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 I'm quite I'm quite um, um, happy with saying that the same pond will affect here the the ant and the the diving beetle, the extended insect, um, in different ways. Uh, The ant, we can say, wants to get away from the pond, is frightened, is worried, is uh, defensive, whereas the um, diving beetle is is comfortable, is confident, and is at ease in it, because these are all under... Yes, in uh, um, what is called, quotation. Works. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, and if, if, if you accept this uh, description, then what is going on in the, in the case of the diving beetle is that the beetle enacts an extended form of confidence. So it, 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 we have here an extended affective state in, from an inactive perspective. Um, this is a form of confidence whose material basis is constituted by the insect plus the air bubbles. And can we say more about the effective life of these creatures? I, it's something I find quite fascinating, I don't know how much one can say, but I find, for example, that um, talking about the Umwelt in terms of a landscape of forces that attract or repel organisms can help here. And in fact, Huxkul uh, already um, characterise the umwelt in part in this way. And um, I think there are in- interesting connections here with uh, a notion that was quite uh, popular in the 30s and uh, Kurt Levin talked about it but also you find it in Tolman. Uh, this notion of character, which is great, I don't need to translate it here, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, if in English it has been translated into demand character or invitation character or even valence. And Levin developed this notion as as he was talking about children and their relation to the environment. And he was describing how there can be different forces that pull children in various directions. Um, But he also talked about how uh, the the child experiences uh, these tensions away or uh, towards a variety of of, um, uh, things in the environment. So I think we can we can characterize the umwelt in terms also of demand characters, and then we can say that the ant, so the non-aquatic ant that finds itself in the pond, um, and the, d- the diving beetle, the extended living system, they live in umwelten that are different because they differ in their demand character. So presumably, in the case of the ant, by the way, I haven't said it here. I'm imagining. Well, imagining. Apparently, these ants. Cannot trap air bubbles, but they can—they uh, can survive underwater for um, for uh, some um, maybe two weeks or so by uh, closing off their spiracles. So you know, I'm imagining here an ant which is still alive underwater, but is threatened, and so this—the environment will have all sorts of field forces that kind of push the ants maybe away from the from the pond. But in the case of the diving beetle, the field of force of the Umwelt is, is reversed, because the beetle can stay in the water and can linger on, f- in fact, for an indefinite amount of time. And um, so now I'm coming towards then the end of the talk. I, I wasn't sure, um, maybe I, I, don't, I don't remember when I started, but <laughs> so I'll, I'll go no, here okay. a, bit, a bit more quickly than than. Um, uh, than I would have liked to, but maybe we can discuss that later. So, I mean, ultimately the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting about all of this is because I'm interested on whether any of these considerations can then apply to the human case and is there any sense in which the inactive view of, uh, of the mind uh, can also allow in the case of human affectivity to be extended, in the sense of being enacted by not just the brain or the whole organism but also by, if you want, a composite system made by the human organism and some form of material artefacts. So does any of this uh, story I've told about, this uh, um, simple uh, animals, apply to humans? Can human affective states be extended, uh, or in other words, can the physical processes realising the affective states in humans come to include parts of the world outside of the organism. And here I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling with this idea. So what I'll do is just give you one example that uh, strikes me as uh, um, maybe, maybe needs some refinement, but perhaps it's in the right direction. And this is uh, an example that seems to <coughs> me is a good candidate for illustrating a kind of extended human mood. And the example is the one of a, of a musician and a his instrument. Uh, In fact, um, let's focus now to the case of an improvising musician and his saxophone, which is actually an example I take from uh, Tom Cochrane, who uh, develops this quite nicely, although he he uses this for quite a different argument. But as uh, Cochrane emphasises, we can think of uh, uh, the relationship between an improvising musician and, and his instrument as one of a very close intimate relation such that also um, the musician that makes changes to the saxophone, um, moves the keys, uh, blows air into it, makes it vibrate in a certain way, and these changes then influence, it, influence what the musician will play next, in a kind of continuous process of uh, reciprocal influences between the two. So the suggestion here is that throughout the f- performance, as the performance develops temporally, the instrument can be seen as a mediating structure, that is part of the adaptive autonomous organization of uh, a new system made by the musician and the instrument. And the configuration of this new extended system is in fact the physical underpinning of a certain mood. We can imagine that a musician, as he plays, he's <coughs> achieving a certain I don't know, kind of a, a mood of uh, longing or loneliness. So in that case, the suggestion is that the mood is realized not just by the organism, but by a hybrid, uh, hybrid system composed by the human organism and uh, the non-organic uh, system, the saxophone. So we have a kind of extended, extended mood. Okay. So then I'll summarize my main points, and this is my last slide. So, um, so. The, the takeaway message is that the enactive approach I think does allow non-organic parts of the world to be part of the physical processes that enact cognition in the sense of sense making and so that's a sense that also includes affectivity and this is so because enactivism characterizes the physical processes that enact sense making importantly in organizational terms and these uh, physical processes enacting sense making are seen as making up a living organisation that is characterised by adaptive autonomy. And we have seen that hybrid systems can be organised in this way, but then arguably these are systems that don't just extend the living organism, Mm. as Paolo says, but they also extend sense-making. They are also extended sense-making systems and that also includes uh, uh, affectivity, so they are also extended affective system and uh, thank you for your attention. Yeah, thank you very much for an interesting